0: I like to talk a bit about, you know, drumming. Drumming, yeah, well, we got we... the drums there.
1: Yes, Let's,
0: uh...
2: <laughs> what are we going to do? A well, great guitar, look at that.
0: Thank you very much. Um, a great one, which... i very... I don't think I've ever found a drummer to play this one right. And you can probably explain why, because it's a very well, unusual. Well,
2: when you time. tell me what it is, I might be... I'm not
0: going to say. I'm just going to play the beginning. Uh, oh, you're going to surprise Yeah, such a, you recognize it,
2: of course. I keep going to hit that now, it's been so long. (laughs) Uh, The interesting thing with this pattern is that it's actually the bass that opens that song. Yeah. And, you know, John's words. You know, that was, that's the intro. There's no, like, real verse or anything. And so we're sitting around, and it was just like playing with, what he was saying, mm-hmm. and with what the, the bass line was doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, trying to find sort of an interesting piece. because the, besides this part that comes in several times, the rest of it is just like <laughs> It's just like fours, you know what I mean, it's real easy. Yeah. But why we got to this is because, you see, I'm left-handed, and I'm playing a right-handed kit. If there's any drummers in here, you see, they usually go, you know, they go round the drum this way. Well, I can't do that. See, I can't go. So I have to get this hand down. To roll. So that's why everyone thought, "Wow, he's a genius!" But all he was doing is trying to play backwards. <laughs> you know, so he goes. Uh. So it comes down this way, and all my fills, which you know, I have- you know, they don't come in fast, there's always a break, because I have to get this hand <laughs> ready. <laughs> and get back. You know what I'm saying? So, it's like one of those mad accidents, you can't learn it, uh, I was left-handed, my grandmother didn't like that, she made me go right-handed. And so I have a right-handed kit, but actually I'm a left-handed player.
0: Wow. I hope that
2: answers all your questions. I hope Night. you getting this, Brent.
3: From this week's Monday with Fab, I'm Ed Chan and I'm Lonnie Pena. Back again,
1: Darren Murphy. Hello, great to be back. It's great to see you again, Darren. Oh, I'm so so happy you're in town. Always good to see you guys. Always great to be here in the Heights, my old neighborhood, the place of my birth. It's not your birthday today, <laughs> but it will be one day. They oh. say it's your own
3: birthday. <laughs> oh, as, as you can what as you can here? hear, we have. Force him to pick up the drumsticks and talk a little bit about
1: the man, the legend, Ringo Starr, <laughs> as a drummer. But <laughs> <laughs> first of all, thanks to Greg Whitmire for supplying me with this gorgeous drum kit—not a Ludwig kit, but a, an incredible Tama Star Classic, Barbingo wood. It's 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 awesome. Thank you, Greg. You're quite welcome. So now. Here's the thing about, about Ringo, and there's a myth about Ringo that has been perpetuated through the years by r- random music fans, even some Beatles fans, that Ringo was the luckiest guy in show business. He was a competent at most drummer who hits a ride with three extraordinarily talented and attractive young men. But the truth is that those three extraordinary guys were originally declared unsignable across the board by the entire london music industry including george martin he originally passed twice as a matter of fact (laughs) yeah yes and uh it was only after being ordered by the emi chairman sir joe lockwood to sign them as a favor to a music publisher that he uh he finally caved in and even at that point he had signed them to a six recording contract six songs Six is all, sides. Is, yep. Six sides is all he was looking for. And once he had him in the can, he has no obligation to continue. But during that process, they changed drummers. They hired Ringo Starr, and their fate changed for them forever. And that was a major,
4: very major decision for them. I mean, it, it obviously, I mean, it, it did a 180. yeah
1: 180 immediately it caused a lot of logistical problems for them because pete was pete best was so firmly ingrained in the band's infrastructure and so it did make some waves and they didn't do it very tactfully at all but it as a long-term investment history speaks for itself it was something that actually absolutely had to be done in order for that picture to be completed and once it was It was amazing, the transformation of that band, just by changing one member of the personnel. Ringo Starr turned a good band into an explosive band overnight.
3: And we have to put it on the record here. Damn Jasper Johns for making that stupid joke about uh, uh, Ringo not even being the best drummer in the Beatles, just because that, that line is now repeated over and over again, and everyone wants to claim this, John Lennon. How myths are born.
1: it is a myth it is a myth yeah i mean obviously ringo was a, a, a a a more skilled and more experienced drummer than pete best he knew how to play more styles but the thing about ringo was that he understood instinctively the power of when the timing when is everything when you're Trying to put a song together, when you're putting a a, a feel together, something about knowing exactly when to bring down that right foot on the kick that makes a song explosive, that creates an emotional response. In the Beatles' case, a hysterical response. That is how you rule the world, with your right foot just being able to come down at, at exactly the right place, totally synced up with Paul McCartney's bass. That was something that they had not experienced before as a band. And the first gig that Ringo sat down to play when he was subbing for Pete Best, I think it was at the Cavern Club, mm-hmm. the three of them, Paul tells the story to this day, the three of them just looked at each other and were like, fuck out, what's
5: this? <laughs> and then one night our uh, drummer then Pete Best, uh, wasn't available. And we uh, so Ringo sat in and I remember the moment. I mean Pete was great and we, we had a great time with him but me, John and George, God bless them. Yeah. Me, John and George were on the front line singing, which we usually were. And now behind us we had this guy that we'd never played with before. And I remember the moment. When he started playing, we started. But I think it was like Ray Charles. What did I say? And most of the drummers couldn't nail the drum part. It's so a little bit clearer. Yeah. You know, it was a little uh, difficult to do, but we were nailed So yeah, we got nailed there! And I remember the moment, Just standing there and looking at John. And they're looking at George. And the look on our faces was all like, What is this? And that that was the moment. You know, that was the beginning, really, of the Beatles. Anyway.
4: Uh And what's amazing about Ringo that maybe some of the listeners don't know, some of the new listeners, is that uh, Ringo is not right-handed.
1: That's right. He's a Southpaw.
3: It, yeah, it, and- His Granny Annie, uh, he was born left-handed, and his Granny Annie made him right-right-handed, and uh, he's ambidextrous in a lot of things. He is. I don't know,
4: Darren, maybe you can contribute to this, and and how does this, uh, how does a drummer react to that when he's forced to, you know, right-right-handed, but he's left-handed?
1: Uh, you know, I wouldn't know. <laughs> I, I'm am a right-handed player, and uh, but I have uh, flipped my drum kit around a few times to, for, if nothing else, just to help my coordination <laughs> to try to do the same thing I do right-handed, left-handed and I've had various degrees of success. I'd never do it in public.
3: Now, that Ringo drum setup was though for a righty. Was for a righty, and Mm -hmm. and, I mean, that's what he likes to call his quote, silly fills, where he he
1: just gets ever so slightly behind the beat. Because he leads with his left hand. He leads with his left left hand primarily, and uh, which is why uh, on some of of those Beatle tracks, you'll hear the drums going up in pitch instead of down because that's just how his his body does it okay, so so typically you would not hear that in a right-handed drummer right a drummer right. a right-handed drummer does this right uh so that happens even you know, paul mccartney also a left-handed guy and a right-handed drummer uh, oh, okay. Well, I, we never, uh, never yeah, thought of that. I, I never,
3: <laughs> d- d- Is Paul using a right-handed kit when he plays? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, because most of the kits that they saw then were right-handed, and rather than bother having to just sort of turn everything around, they just sat at the kits as they were and dealt with it. Paul was the drummer for the Beatles for a brief period before Pete Best showed up. Okay.
4: Well, yeah, I think we like to, uh, you know, Pete Best, was, uh, he was at the right place at the right time. Ringo was the right drummer at the right time.
3: Now, now, before we leave Pete completely, uh, it, Pete likes to talk about, he, quote, discovered this thing he called the Atom Beat. Do you have any idea what that was, or is that just Pete talking out of his backside?
1: Well, <laughs> the, the way Pete tells it, uh, most of the people around Liverpool were copying the Shadows. The, they were Cliff Richards' backup band that became an instrumental phenomenon uh, so similar to, I guess, to the Americans, uh, the Ventures uh, and Hank Marvin, the was the guitar player. He was a guitar god in in uh, in the music community in England. So they were a highly revered band, even by the Beatles. But the Beatles weren't interested in in copying their sound. They liked more of a pounding rock and roll sound, which came from Pete Best just leaning into his kick drum and stomping, you know, a faster version of what uh, what became known later on as disco. But uh, Pete Best would sort of put that twist beat to it. Or uh, he did the ride cymbal for the most part. So it was just kind of be this. Which that was the only fill that you'll ever hear Pete Best do. He does it on every single record, just 16th notes on the snare.
3: Yeah, there, there's some hilarious reimaginings of like come together if pete best had played on it. It, 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 it go on youtube and, and, and yeah you you, you'll, you hit the nail on the head or the nail oh but never mind on the,
1: the side. 16th yeah. the 16th notes yeah. I, I i can't go there i just can't
4: okay uh, play, up, oh, sorry pete. Play, hey, i do this darren play come together but pete best style no I, no, I, no, no don't no, go no. he's not going no, no, okay never okay mind. okay
3: Okay, so uh, so you were just talking about feel. Uh, uh, describe what feel means to a drummer in
1: particular. Well, very, very quickly, very briefly, there is a thing in rhythm known as a pocket. Okay, and if, if you've got a, a metronome, and the metronome is going to be playing right on the beat, right? So everything is measured in quarter notes and eighth notes and or surrounding each one of those notes is a very thin sort of cushion of time, which is known as the pocket. And drummers make choices as to where in that cushion of time they're going to put each instrument, each, each part of the drum kit. The snare drum can land several places. It can land right on top of the beat. It can land slightly ahead of the beat. It can land slightly behind it and where that lands determines the way the song is going to feel same thing with the kick drum you know led zeppelin for example john bonham is a very deep pocket kick drum player he hits slightly behind the beat which gives it a lot more ferocity a lot more depth someone like earth wind and fire that's a little more jazz oriented he's going to play right on top of the beat right so ringo falls a little bit more into the category of john bonham his Kick drum is very just slightly behind the accurate beat, but his snare is right on top of it, which is what keeps everything so tied together. That was what made that band so tight. And so he and Paul had this unspoken understanding of what their rhythm needed to feel like and sound like, and that's why they gelled so quickly as a rhythm section. And it turned John and George into new musicians that changed the way they played. So his pocket just happened. It was one of those other things, not only his personality and, and his tastes, it is a bit, but his, his pocket that was absolutely perfect for that band and it turned them into a phenomenon. That doesn't happen all the time. Right. And I guess to a certain
4: degree, that influenced them as a band. It influenced them mu- musically. Sure. You know, because a good drummer, a offbeat, whatever this, the, the case is, I think that is influential.
3: Maybe give us a little bit of a day in the life, which I think is one of the better examples of Ringo's feel.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting about a, about a day in the life? Two things that are interesting about that. Number one, it was not the first thing that they did. That was one of the last things they did on that track. Ringo was actually playing the drums with Paul as an overdub, which is very difficult to do because you have a rhythm that's already been set by guitars. Okay, and I think yeah. maybe the only thing he had to, to go by keeping the time was a pair of maracas and a little bit of conga that he had laid down earlier. So trying to get that in and match the feel of music that is already there is very tough. And Ringo nailed it in just a couple of takes. And he, of course he comes in with a fill. <laughs> Which, if you listen to the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, there, is, which was a, in, in a lot of ways, a template for *Sgt. Pepper*. There's a track called uh, "I'm Waiting for the Day," yeah, I remember that. It starts yeah. very, very similar. And they copped so many different things from Pet Sounds, but I'm almost positive. I have I can't back this up with paperwork, but I'm almost <laughs> positive that Paul went to Ringo and said, "Hey, will you do that Beach Boys thing?" Mm-hmm for this, you know, over I think it would sound great. Yeah. I think there's there's Ringo in the other room. He's standing <laughs> next to you, Darren. Sounds just like Ringo. <laughs> so so when uh, when Richie took over and, and everything else on that track he, he comes out, he makes that initial Beach Boys statement and then everything else is classic Ringo. <laughs> Again, Ringo really taking his time with the kick to really dig in and, and match the, the flow of the tune. And actually being able to have that kind of discipline with a bass drum. Uh, as a drummer, as drummers, we spend years working on this stuff, trying to find just that right feel that uh, locks everything together, especially in the recording studio. That's very, very difficult to do. And for Ringo, it just came naturally. That, oh. doesn't, that does not happen. Yeah, it's sweet when it comes natural to you
4: darren too it sounds so so sweet well again it took awesome. me
1: it took me years <laughs> <laughs> to, to work this thing up it takes a, a lot of studying to be ringo damn it uh, so now ringo always liked to say that uh you know as the songwriting changed the way they played changed so if you listen to the beatles catalog In chronological order, it's very, very easy to track the evolution of Ringo's drumming, and it changed pretty permanently with every single album. There were very few instances where Ringo went backwards in time to something that he did before. He'd pick up a certain style, and he'd use it for an album, and then he would discard it. And then he would move on, move on to something else. So his groove changed. His, uh, some of his fills change.
2: I could never work a fill out. It comes in the emotion of the song. Right. And so I could never double a fill. You know what I mean? I couldn't, we put the track down and then, okay, double that fill. I could never do it because it just came off whenever it came off.
4: You, 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 yeah, you couldn't duplicate you know, it's the an exact emotional
2: same style I have.
1: But he did have a couple of choice techniques that he would rely on that he would keep coming back to. And there are certain motifs in Ringo's playing style that are consistent throughout the entire Beatles career. But his the, the style, the type of grooves that he played really changed with every single album. I mean the when they were doing their, their hamburg stuff, it was all so much of this kind of twist beat. And then he would uh, you know ride, he had a, a very quick right hand so you'd hear that on a lot of stuff long tall sally for example and then he would uh oh even on like please please me it's like slightly slower version and occasionally he put a little bit of that what they call that pete best adam beat. Mm -hmm. For the four, but he would always throw in a couple of little things there, so it ends up being like this. And unlike a lot of drummers that have the same kind of feel, there, there's, there's very little dynamics in the way most people hit the kick drum, but Ringo liked to finesse it, so he might do something like this, and... And then he would really hit it harder to emphasize the, the top of a bar or something. So it would end up sounding something like this.
4: Right? And that would be unique uh, for Ringo. Mm-hmm. I mean, you didn't have a typical type of drumming variation.
3: Now, now what about the opening of She Loves You? I mean, that, that's a drum yeah, yeah. drum piece that I've always thought was, was very... ad ad-typical. You know. Yeah, atypical. atypical yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that actually comes from a very simple drum rudiment. The you know, rudiments are, uh, are basically rudimentary exercises that drummers use to develop coordination, and then all of their the drum fills throughout the rest of, of whenever are all based on those, on, on those exercises. And this is a really simple exercise. If you're a right-handed drummer, it's right-left, left-right. If you're a left-handed drummer like Ringo, it's the opposite. Left, right, right, left. Right. So Ringo did that quite a few times. Right? So that's basically what She Loves You is. It's that exercise with one extra beat right at the end. Now you play that up to speed. One, two.
4: I want to grab my guitar here, it's
1: just, you know, you're, oh, this is motivational <laughs> here. Does that answer motivational your Motivational here. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and this little thing right here is one of Ringo's chief techniques that he used throughout his career from the first album. He uses it on, uh, he uses it to do fills, like I saw her standing there. Right? Or uh, and it goes all the way up through the the very last track of Abbey Road. Right. That's all that okay. solo is, and wow. then he's got this thing, this driving thing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
4: Sweet, I can listen to you all day. <laughs> this is great.
3: So let's talk about the other thing Ringo does is he has a very unique sound for the way he uses the cymbals. Yes.
1: Uh, now, Ringo's cymbal layout was always uh, a, a little unusual. Uh, most drummers, now, most contemporary drummers, if it's a right-handed drummer, if you're playing a right-handed kit, then there, there's going to be a ride cymbal over to your right, across from the hi-hat. So. You cross over and play the hi-hat to the left, go over to the right to play the ride cymbal. Well, Ringo's ride was over... Or his, like, big old 20-inch crash was always over to his left. He liked to have a smaller cymbal, an 18-inch over in the ride position. And and now he did have a really... In the early Beatles, the days of Twist and Shout, he did have a very dry-sounding ride cymbal, and you can really hear the ting-ting-ting-ting you can hear it pinging on songs like "Boys" and and "Twist and Shout" and uh, and one or two others, but that went away very quickly. By the time of "Long Tall Sally," he had an 18-inch crash planted firmly over to the right, and that was how you get that sort of wash. That sort of what, what my friend Steve Wilson calls the faucet symbol, mm-hmm. the water faucet symbol, uh, because it's a it's a small symbol and it's and it and it resonates very clearly. So the The stick definition gets drowned out by the ringing out of the cymbal. By itself, you can hear the beats, but you put bass and kick to it or or kick and snare to it. Then it just kind of washes out. That's what you hear on, uh, uh, most notably on Help. And he's not really leaning into it at all. He's just... But the, the mics are picking it up in such a way that so it's, it's the performance combined with the way it's recorded that, that makes it so magical. Yeah.
4: Ringo has obviously a, just a number of, of unique drumming uh, tidbits here and there that you know right off the bat. It's gonna You have a Beatles song coming up, but one unusual song that I, I've seen as early in, in 65 was Ticket to Ride. Mm-hmm. That was sort of an unusual... I mean, was he hitting his... He wasn't hitting his snare. Was he not, or was it a floor drum that
1: was causing that little
4: uh syncopated beat
1: oh it, it was his snare in, in fact that the drums that to ride were actually paul's idea you know so much of what ringo did he did at the instruction of the other guys who they had a certain kind of thing in mind for the song that they were writing and mm, and okay. ringo said oh so you want it like this you know so paul came up with the idea and then ringo just executed it. Uh, so he does the big flam. The flam is what happens when you two sticks land on the snare at the same time. Right? So okay. he'd do this. And then he'd go over to his, his first rack tom right before the next bar stops. So if he just, one bar of it, it's like this. And then you just chain those up over and over again, and then you get it. Right? Sweet. Now, the, my favorite thing. What's What's great about it? What makes the the picture totally developed is what Ringo does between those grooves, the fills that he uses, and, and this is what's What's really unique the way he uses this uh, this tom-tom. Most drums drummers are gonna play six notes in slow motion. Ringo actually throws in seven. He leads with his left and then wraps up with his right. So that extra note in there makes it a little bit more full, a little bit more magical. And also, he doesn't go for the center of the drum the way a lot of drummers do. He goes for the outer edge. Has more of a ring to it, a little bit more... It just has a a different feel. It's a little sweeter, it's a little bit gentler. And so that's when you throw all that stuff together and you get this. And so on and so forth. But my absolute favorite moment in that entire song is the very, end, the very last chorus. Because he does sort of different fills. Sometimes he'll do this. And he'll move. He'll have one stick on the snare. So it'll be like this. A couple of those. But the very last one is just this one big fat flam. And it just, yeah. it does so little and it says so much. It's it's that it's the, it says done. Drop the mic.
4: Sweet. Any you can go on tour just alone there, Darren. <laughs> just a, just your drum set, and do all the Beatle tunes yourself.
1: Let's book this thing, man. <laughs> Let's
4: do it. No 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 guitars, no drums, no keyboards.
3: The, there was the, yeah. Well, there was that guy who did the, the what all the Beatles songs in two minutes or whatever on drums.
1: Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. No, that was kind of that
3: was kind of clever. I thought. Uh, so, what about the tea towels? I mean, you know, by the the later period, Ringo likes to talk about how he was using the tea towels on the drums to change
1: the sound. I'm glad you mentioned that because I really wanted to talk about his snare drum for a second. I brought uh, a snare drum with me that is ostensibly a, a Ringo snare, um, in every way except for the finish. You know, Ringo had, of course, the black oyster pearl or whatever oyster black pearl whatever they call it this is a black diamond pearl but other than that it's the same in just about every way it's this is a ludwig jazz festival snare from 1963 as uh, you know three ply maple and uh, i'm not maple three ply mahogany and poplar woods but what's unique about this drum is that this is a five and a half by 14 inch Snare, as opposed to the 5x14 that you see everywhere else. And that is what makes this a Ringo snare. Ringo had several Ludwig kits, but the first one that he got had a 5x14, a a 5.5x14 snare, and he was so attached to that snare that he used it exclusively at every gig and every recording session, from She Loves You all the way to I, Me, Mine, probably on the first... John and George solo albums, ponder that for a second. That's over 200 songs, so many different drum sounds, all done with the same snare drum. Oh, incredible. Half snare will travel. <laughs> right. And <laughs> so, the, uh, the, because the guys, uh, you know, John and Paul, were they really insisted on, doing, on not doing the same thing twice. It was like, well, we had that snare sound on the on previous track. What can we do differently? with this one. So Ringo would disguise his snare in several different ways. Sometimes he would, uh, I guess, the old, do the old Hal Blaine trick where Hal would just throw a wallet across the snare surface. Uh, <laughs> Ringo would tape a packet of cigarettes mm-hmm. to the snare. I use uh, I, I use my iPhone, actually, <laughs> for stuff like oh, that. Oh, it's another use for iPhone, folks. <laughs> exactly. It's, <laughs> it's It's got plenty of weight on it. I can just throw it there, and then it turns, you know, this... Actually, wide open, the snare sounds like this. Got a bit of a room, uh, a ring to it. So you throw in something heavy with some bulk. Oh, I can hear the difference. It really dries yeah. it up. That's yeah. how you get Taxman.
4: right so ringo was a time traveler you're saying he used the iphone on the tax man that's exactly right right. okay that's what
3: i thought
1: well it did did come from apple so oh, bingo yeah (laughs) good one Uh, so so ringo would also throw a tea towel over the uh over the snare to damp it completely and a lot of people associate that with the later recordings like white album and abbey road but the truth is that he started as early as a hard day's night. If you listen to things we said today, um, other tracks like When I Get Home, the snare is really, really dry because he threw that tea towel over. It was just the way that the drums were recorded that make them sound so different. But it's, it's all right there. right? So he made really great use of of that towel on so many different tracks, even going into Beatles for Sale. You hear a little bit of it on uh, No Reply. You hear some of it on um, not so much I'm a Loser. Uh, Oh, let's talk about what you're doing. So there, you yeah. Go. yeah,
4: yeah. You know, it's just as a drummer, as not a drummer that I am. I'm a guitar player, but uh, you know, I, I could, you know, underappreciate the value of the variation that Ringo exhibited. It, <laughs> it, it, but, but you have, I think, clearly stated. I mean, it's there's so much to appreciate.
1: Yeah, and different tunings, too. In the early days, Ringo liked to tune his snare really low. For With the Beatles was the first album that you hear that Ludwig 55 by 14 snare appear on. And while it, he was at odds with the, uh, their recording engineer, Norman Smith, Norman liked drummers to hit the, the drums squarely in the center of the drum head. Where Ringo was, most of the time, he was a rim shot player. Rim shot is where you hit the rim of the drum and the drum surface at the same time, and it, it becomes more explosive. It's a lot more yeah, percussive. Yeah. It's, it cuts through. It's it, it's definitely the sound of rock and roll, and you hear it on Elvis's Jailhouse Rock and Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. So Ringo made full use of that. You know, dep- a lot of it just de- depending on what the song was. You hear it most notably on you know, Ticket to Ride and Help, and you'll also hear it on Long Tall Sally for something that just really needed to cut through and all of it. So by, that, by the time that they got established as a band, Ringo wasn't paying a whole lot of attention to what the, the recording engineer was telling him to do. He's like, I'm going to play drums <laughs> my way. <laughs> Yeah.
4: Sweet, you know, and I, I appreciate the uh, recording techniques of EMI because most of the groups in the early '60s, the the drumming, the drums were in the background, the the, the guitars and whatnot, they would overshadow most of the drumming.
1: A lot of it, yeah. yeah. And what was so interesting about about the those early recordings? They're I don't know. It's it's so hit and miss. They tried to, to to get each album to sound different. You know, the first Please Please Me album was an attempt to really make a, a live album in the studio. Norman wanted to set right, the mics right. up to capture this sort of a live performance. And so with the Beatles, there was a little bit more studio technique, a lot more overdubs. But Ringo's drum kit was was uh, sounded terrific. Obviously, it was a, a, the first Ludwig kit that he'd used, so that had a definite improvement over the Premiere kit that he'd used before. And they were using the same miking techniques, but that bass drum really cuts through on that With The Beatles record, just yeah, as the drum sounds are, are a lot more rich, and in, in some instances the guitars are sort of on the background, so that's reason number one why that album really rocks.
4: Yeah, and I did, you know, one thing about the 2009 remasters, that when they went and remastered all the Beatles CDs and whatnot, is that they uh, they enhanced the drums. You, you, you clearly can hear the kick now. That's right. In the snare
1: and so forth. So that was a, much appreciated. <laughs> Another big part of Ringo's evolution as a drummer is if, if you listen to the Please Please Me album, there's either some dry ride or there's some hi-hat, right? It's not until She Loves You that Ringo discovers this half-open hi-hat sound. So when you've got, like if you've got the hi-hat open like this, and you close it, you get that. But if you hit somewhere in the middle where where the top cymbal is sort of rattling above, then you get this whole other thing. And that was what, when Ringo discovered that, he used it forever. He used it on almost every track on With the Beatles. From the opening track, It Won't Be Long.
0: Every
2: night when everybody has fun Here am I, sitting all on my
1: own To I Wanna Be Your Man. Right? And then, for that album, he had this particular groove that he was using which was that twist beat sort of that atom beat that mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier where without the hi-hat you've got this not a second time right away oh, it won't yeah. be long yeah. right away and what was it uh, all i've got to do straight away <laughs> combined with this open hi-hat And then he would take that and put a little more swing into it for "All My Loving,"
4: etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That has a swing. Was there any particular technique that he uh, used different in uh, the revolver recording sessions? Well,
1: uh, yeah, uh, it, the way he used his kick on um, his kick drum on uh, on those records that's really what changed more dramatically than anything was else. it okay uh, by the time they were doing uh, there uh, there were a couple of tunes before with the beatles singles like she loves you and uh from me to you thank you girl where he had this beat i call it the bob beat that's mm-hmm. just my name my name for it but he's just doing this right so you hear that on yeah. from me to you you heard? There's a place. Misery. She loves you. Right. I want to hold your hand. Now, what I, I'm going to backtrack for a second because this is uh, another Ringo signature that that I just love. He uses this this particular fill on two tracks from that period. Not uh not a second time. And I want to hold your hand. And he does this this sort of what we call triplets. So you know, three notes that are really fast. But Ringo does the tom and the snare together. And so that's something that you don't really hear too well. So he'll do rack tom and then floor tom. So he'll do this. And then go back to to this groove. Now, after with the Beatles, this groove here disappears forever. The next album is A Hard Days Night. The next track is You Can't Do That. And his groove changes to this. Got to say that-, that is the sound of the Hard Days Night album with Open Hi-Hat. Right? And you put yeah. the 12 string on that. Uh, you get the album, like you say. Yeah, exactly. You get I Call Your Name. You get uh, When I Get Home. Um, maybe there's a little backtrack on Any Time At All. <laughs> just for a second, just for the feel. And then there's a, a nod or two towards that on the, the, the next album, Beatles For Sale. But by that time he's evolving into more country techniques. He's taking this fast hi-hat that he, or this fast cymbal thing, and he's bringing it over to the hi-hat. That's your classic fast country swing a la Buck Owens act naturally. So Ringo uses that on everything from I'm a loser, I don't want to spoil the party. Help is really where it culminates, where it, it, it really, and she's a woman. It really gels for him there and, of course, his own cover of Act Naturally. That's one of my favorite bits of Ringo footage ever is him doing mm-hmm. Act Naturally Live on British TV. And you can hear the drums so well and, and just watch him play them so effortlessly while very nervously singing that lead, that lead <laughs> vocal. But the drumming is, 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 is just so fantastic. Yeah. took me years. To develop that to where it to where it feels and, and sounds effortless. Now, now so,
3: I'm a real fan of the new mix of the Hollywood Bowl. A lot of people don't like it, but I, the fact that you can
1: hear the drums in
4: yeah, that's big difference.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, uh, fast forward to the uh, the the next records, uh, Help and Rubber Soul, Ringo really starts mixing it up quite a bit. With, with those drum sounds. Ticket to Ride is, is revolutionary. He tends to take this and deviate from the kick, so he starts using other parts of the kit to create that, that feel. And this time, there's very little hi-hat in that track, so he's just doing this. Which he only does on the record. He never did that live. Mm-hmm. He just kept with this etc. Okay. So so by the time Rubber Soul comes along the songwriting is changing so the performance is changing and that's when the, the the playing gets a little more slowed down it's a little more mellow You won't see me just laid back and the same thing with drive my car
4: Right. Yeah, just basic, mellow it's, it, But it's, it's, it's uh, interesting that how each album he developed uh, And he was consistent for each album mm-hmm. But then uh, developed for the next album
1: Yeah, and but, but he, there's still a few things A few motifs that he uses throughout He likes to do this triplet thing Where he's going Tom, snare, Tom One, two, three, one, two, three, one Right, so he uses that uh, on just about everything from from me to you. The opening fill on from me to you. Right, right. Uh, right. Twist and yeah. shout. So he brings it back for the opening track to Rubber Soul. Drive my car. One, mm-hmm. two. Yeah. Right. Now he takes that thing right there. And he expands it, he puts a little bit of a kick into it, and this is how you, he's taking, he starts syncopating it. He's turning those triplets and putting them inside a 4-4 context, right? Now we're getting into Revolver. We're getting into Revolver, we're getting into Strawberry Fields. So that whole period, that year between Revolver, Strawberry Fields, Sergeant Pepper, is when you get a lot of this stuff. I just oh, played great. about three Love or four it. Beatles songs in that one little <laughs> section, right?
4: Earlier, before we uh, went, uh, we hit the record button. You were uh, you were playing uh, the drumming to uh, a, a working title song called "The Void." Oh, could you
1: yeah. Could you just do us a, a pleasure of
4: playing that and let it, let the audience decide what song that is?
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, there's <laughs> a couple of different versions of that, as I'm sure you heard when the anthology came out. The the original version was something uh, pretty straightforward. He, Ringo was over here on the, on the crash. He did this little thing, this little trill on the snare with his left hand. Yeah. yeah. So after uh, uh, a few takes, by the time of the third take came around, he was sort of mixing that with the, the ticket to ride, sort of. But instead of doing this, he went here, right? So now you got yeah. That's until,
4: what I'm talking the, about. until the
1: until <laughs> the end of the beginning. So there you go. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I can hear that continuously (laughs) now what was unique about Revolver Revolver was a turning point in the recording career because Norman Smith the engineer everything up through Rubber Soul leaves Jeff Emmerich comes in and takes over and Mike's Ringo's drum kit differently so Ringo takes advantage of that and starts playing it differently so all of a sudden, you get this kick drum that's really up in the mix and that's really, really tight. So he's able to finesse it more. So you get a, a song like "Taxman" and you hear this really fast stuff for the first time. Yeah. Right, and right, then right. you get a more uh, aggressive approach. I mean, Ringo had let's talk about the the push beat for just a second this is where the the one of the kick drums sort of pushes ahead of the beat instead of landing right on it mm-hmm. so you'll hear that in a, you know yeah. um, baby it's you that <laughs> uh, soldier of love right so ringo takes it full throttle on paperback rider So that's yeah. where where that yeah. comes in.
4: Straightforward. Yeah, <laughs> loving it.
1: So, so answer the Dear Prudence
3: question. I mean, we we all pretty much now believe that Paul's playing the drums for most
1: of it, and then Ringo overdubbed the end. Is that correct? the The last piece. You know, it's uh, that is still a uh, a confusing topic because I I opened up those Beatle rock band stems and I listened to the drums very very carefully, and if you isolate the vocal track, John's lead vocal track, you can hear Paul's original drum track all the way through uninterrupted. And and then if you isolate the drums, at some point you can actually hear the edit. You can hear where the drums are punched in. Uh, in fact, it's punched in twice. Hmm, okay. Uh, one is on uh, Won't You Let Me See You Smile. Won't you let me... Something like that, right? And somewhere in the middle, there's another punch in, because right in the middle of that thing, the towel comes off. Mm. All of a sudden, you get this. Right? Now, the reason I think that it's Ringo is uh, there are two things. Number one, a lot of rim shots. That That was Ringo's signature. Secondly, the order in which the toms are played, instead of like this, it goes down. That's another Ringo signature. Right? Okay. So um, those are are a couple of clues. And also uh, just the way that Ringo, the way his kick lands and uh, the way his his symbol choices are. Things like that. All of those things point to Ringo. Now that's either him or it's Paul doing a damn good impression of him. Dear
5: Prudence
3: Won't you come out to play And I think prob- Paul probably, I mean, you know, they'd been together for, what, five or six years at that point. I, he had an idea, but I don't think he was ever that good a player.
1: Uh, no, Paul was Paul was good enough to get the job done. And he knew it, you know. He knew that he could uh, that he could lay down a groove, but you know, imagine Ringo sticking around and laying down drums on back in the USSR or "Ballad of John and Yoko." I mean, sure, that was a number one hit, but no, <laughs> <Yeah>.
4: just, <laughs> we know he was not in the studio at that time.
1: Right? <laughs> That's right, <laughs>
3: all for, right, for
1: various reasons.
3: We're getting close to running out of time here. Okay, but we'll pick a song, and uh, that you feel the drums are particularly important to, and. Uh, Let's play out with that.
1: All right, well, let's talk about Help, which it, for me is it's the ultimate Beatles recording. It's two minutes and 16 seconds of, of, of sheer perfection. And w- what's great about that is that uh, it really showcases a lot of what made Ringo a uniquely great drummer. One of the things he's able to do instinctively that a lot of it takes years for other drummers to develop, he's able to hit, he's able to play pretty fast. You know, that's okay, but... As far as hitting both sticks at the same time, he can do that lightning fast and with very, very little effort. So what you hear on Help is you hear him doubling up on the snare and the floor tom for each one of those fills. You know, being able to do that and really make it make it play right on time, and, and you're also you're locking in with the acoustic guitar, which is tough to do. If you listen to that track, those guys are, are, are totally on not on just take nine but every single take before then so he's going and again he does this little thing this little fill to to lead it off and most drummers are going to put four beats in right Ringo puts in five again leading with the left and wrapping up with the right and then that takes you into the song This effortless, uh, fast hi-hat with a slight swing to it gives it its unique feel. Very little kick. The the song is actually being driven by the bass and the acoustic guitar. And Ringo's just doing this. Another Ringo signature. Ringo opens his hi-hat right before the fill. And then uh, swings over to the floor dump. And then takes it all the way out. And if you listen to the session tape for help, there's several breakdowns, a lot of things going wrong. There's strings breaking and someone hitting a, uh, you know, a wrong chord too early. But Ringo is on from take one. It's, it's a, uh, a wonderfully fun session to listen to.
3: All right, thank you. I mean, this has been
4: incredible. It has really been. Darren, I cannot say thank you enough. I really appreciate you taking time to to get behind the drums.
1: This is pure fun, give fun for us, me, guys. This is pure, pure me-
4: education for me, and I think for Ed and, and everyone here. Appreciate it, Darren.
1: Oh, well, absolutely, anytime.
4: All right,
3: we'll be back next week with a new show.
4: Be safe, folks.
3: To When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beast of Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Special thanks to Greg Whitmire and G Sound 43 Studios who provided the facilities for recording this episode.
0: I just think that some of your drum patterns,
5: yeah.
0: you, know, uh, you know, like this particular song, when I was <clears throat> listening to radio, I think I mentioned before, and Ticket to Ride came on the radio. Yeah. The drum pattern I immediately noticed wasn't a straightforward drum pattern.
2: And how does it go? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on a minute there. A bit like. Hey, was that it
0: uh, well it's one very interesting <laughs> it was pretty close <laughs> there was one very interesting thing which <laughs> the second downbeat yeah and i think it's because of the shoulder i
2: play with my shoulder you see so there's like exactly you know but, yeah even this wow
0: Exactly, and that, that second downbeat is, is slight, late. slightly late. Yeah. Whenever I've tried to get drummers to play with me that track, they never seem to get that lateness, and it's to do with the swing, isn't it?
2: It is uh, to do with the swing, or as we keep mentioning, medication.
0: <laughs> 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 let's, let's jump in another way. Uh, yeah. Can you just play Back Off Boogaloo a sec? Oh, yeah.
2: why we have that drum pattern. Great. Uh, is beca- <laughs> because he, uh, he said, well, you know, give it that sort of bass on And I can't do that and this. You know, I can't do them both together, so I just sort of cheated. So, okay, two, three, four. That's so how it came to be done on the snare drum because I couldn't just play that bass drum pattern. Wow. So it's magic.
0: <laughs> it's magic. Well, I think,
2: you know, I'd like to sit here and tell everyone, oh yeah, you know, it took me an hour and, or three days to seriously think out this pattern, mm. but actually it happens at the time Or for me, you know, I can't struggle like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It comes naturally or actually, it doesn't come yeah. at all. Yeah. Or it don't come easy. Or it don't come easy. <laughs> It's been done.